This is an AMI podcast. I'm Juita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. A complaint I have often had about accessibility aids is that most are just plain ugly. Designed to be functional, there is often little room for creativity, self-expression, and individuality. Of course, I have come across many artists with disabilities who have pushed back against the norm. They've created decorative knee braces, customized canes with colorful and glittery accessories, and found inspired ways to take something designed to be functional and turned it into a statement. It's almost as though by pushing back against the norm and reclaiming accessibility aids, people with disabilities are making small but important choices about redefining disability and living their lives to the fullest. Today, we discuss accessibility and fashion. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Do the Pulse on AMI-audio. I'm Joyita Gupta. It's really good to be with you again. And uh, for anyone who would like to, of course, be, uh, you know, tune into our show, it is available as a podcast. And you can also find us on Twitter, where I put up the link to the podcast if you want to get caught up with previous episodes. One of the things I really think about is the lack of interaction I have with people on a day-to-day basis because of the pandemic. And if you live downtown Toronto the way I do, it was often very common to see buskers and street performers and preachers and people, you know, who really add some character to the space. And so I really wanted to see about reaching out to some people in Toronto locally and people who've made waves internationally and talk to them about their work and some of their art and get them to think through some of the things that get them excited. And one such person is Kate Muir. And Kate is a performer. She's a, a busker, of course, a DJ and the owner of a small business in Toronto called Bones and Busks which, of course, is uh, deals with corsetry. So we'll be talking to Kate about all that and more today on the program. Kate, hello and welcome to The Pulse. It's really good to have you with us on the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So I know when we generally, when you generally do interviews, we start with the street performance and we end up with the fashion designing. But let's kind of maybe reverse course a little bit and start by talking about uh, your store, which is Baskin Bones, and what led you to open a store, of course, but also how did you get into designing corsets of all things? Well, um, like a lot of young goths who were very poor when I was a teenager, I taught myself how to make corsets. Uh, I had worked for a small independent designer uh, as a teenager and really enjoyed the environment and the atmosphere of being around locally made products. And it really informed me in becoming more judicious about what I was purchasing and, you know, knowing where the products I was buying were coming from and who was making them. And uh, when I started making my own corsets, I basically just took apart antiques and figured out the construction methods that way. And over time, you know, I started to learn more about uh, the the, the finessing of fitting, tight lacing, uh, waist training, um, doing different types of uh, shaping for different bodies, because uh, right now, corsetry tends to have lots of trends. And uh, when I started getting into it, uh, a lot of the fetishists 
were really into um, that very wasp your look or um, the pipe stem look was very popular with the people who are deep into the fetish scene. And mm-hmm. I wanted to learn how to make everything. Um, so when I started doing that, I uh, just started learning everything I could about it and experimenting. Uh, obviously, some experiments were a success. Some of them were a failure. <laughs> but, you know, I kept growing along the way with that. And it was only when a friend of mine uh close to probably about 15 years ago, uh, experienced uh, a car accident and had some spine and rotator cuff issues. And uh, I took the challenge up. She asked if I could make her a corset that would, you know, suit an asymmetrical body. And uh, I consulted with a chiropractor that I knew and developed my patterns based on that kind of work and used her as kind of my guinea pig to uh, develop the pattern. And uh, over time, I started getting a lot more clients who were suffering from scoliosis. My sister had scoliosis when she was younger. So, um, you know, it was kind of something that I was quite interested in. And seeing, you know, and listening to my clients and their experiences and the challenges they faced, I wanted to be able to help them. Uh, so, it, you know, it all comes from experience. You you start working with clients with these particular issues, you start to notice trends and it becomes easier to predict when you're drafting patterns, how you can accommodate for certain things that you just know are going to happen with people. But obviously every, you know, case is different and every experience is different. So uh, I still have a lot to learn and I'm very grateful for the, uh, the experience along the way. One of the things that one commonly hears about corsets, and I'm not saying it's true or false, is that corsets tend to be very restrictive. Women have trouble breathing in them. It uh, almost creates an ideal shape that women's bodies are forced to be to to mold into. How do you respond to some of those ideas that may be floating around out there? Well, I always tell people that bone and busk corsets are designed to fit like a gentle hug, uh, much mm. like a pair of well-made shoes. Uh, they should fit to your body. They shouldn't force your body into a specific shape unless you are working towards a specific goal in which will work with you to achieve that goal. But it does take time. It's not something that you should you know, rush into. For example, creating like a conical rib cage takes a lot of rib training. And that's not something that uh, I think the general public is really interested in. So Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people also forget that a lot of the stuff we read about Victorian corsetry is actually kind of written through a propagandistic lens. Corsetry was historically a practice that was designed for and produced by women. A lot of the patents for antiques were actually patented by women. Um, mm-hmm. And it was only when the bra came into existence that uh, a lot of the bad marketing around corsetry started to come out because the bra was invented by a male doctor and there was a lot of social inequality and social issues that were happening at the time. And a lot of the literature coming out from that, that was, uh, you know, a divisive and abrasive against corsetry was designed to be a smear campaign effectively. Um, these were products that were created for women by women Mm -hmm. because they know their body is best. Um, So, you know, when, whenever people say, Oh, of course it's, you know, aren't they bad for you? You know, I I always respond with, well, you know, the body is amazing. The body changes shape dramatically. Um, You never say that to a pregnant woman, you know, Mm -hmm. who, who is, you know, experiencing massive bodily changes that can sometimes 
produce permanent damage to their bodies. Uh, but we mm-hmm. celebrate pregnancy in this society, uh, but we mm-hmm. don't celebrate women taking ownership or female identifying and presenting individuals taking ownership over their bodies to create a, a look they want. Um, I just find it such a weird kind of practice to, to denigrate corsetry. <laughs> It's true. And, you know, um, I am someone who's been criticized a lot about my posture because I use a magnifier. So uh, as a kid, I've um, had bad posture and I tend to slump a lot. And people said, you know, if you're not careful, you'll have to wear a back brace uh, to improve your posture and things like that. Uh, Back braces are really unappealing and they're not exactly aesthetically pleasing. Why do you think it's important for people when they think about it? you know, things like back braces or other accessibility aids to really try and maybe think through having a, a way to do these, to, to make changes to their bodies or to address any accessibility concerns while also incorporating things that are fun or fashionable or uh, just individual in, in nature rather than being something that's mass produced. Yeah. And that's where I think um, corsetry comes in and fills those mm-hmm. gaps because a lot of my clients get to choose the fabrics that their braces are being made out of. Um, they get to choose fabrics that reflect their personality, but still, you know, I'm producing a garment that will help with their posture. We never say that corsetry is corrective. We always mm-hmm. say we accommodate bodies. So we're accommodating the shape that you currently have. We are making sure that you maintain proper posture and proper stability uh, wherever you are. Some There are some clients that come to me that have spine curvatures that are so dramatic that I can't do anything for them and surgery is really the only option. But for the customers and clients that have mild to, you know, mid uh, level scoliosis, it's an empowering experience for them. I had a customer from Montreal come down to be fit by us. And when she picked up her final garment, she cried. And it was something that, you know, I had never experienced before. You know, Mm -hmm. she had been most of her life you know, spending most of her life in these ugly, drab, uncomfortable braces. Some of them even are made out of plastic, which again, have their uses. Uh, but when you are functioning day to day and trying to assimilate, you know, and, 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 and participate in society, society doesn't really um, reward people with disabilities. In fact, it, they kind of, our society kind of um, punishes people with disabilities. And I think mm-hmm. the more you can empower people to wear products that allow them to feel confident out in society, then, you know, we're one step ahead to, you know, being a less ableist society. And I, I know you're in your store right now, but I'm sure it's been hard for you as it has been for many small businesses during the pandemic. So how have you how have you managed over the course of the pandemic? I know in Ontario, we had many, many days of lockdown. So how has that impacted your business? It was very hard. Uh, we had also hit the two-year mark of, you know, a, a storefront. So if anybody out there listening understands, you know, the, the plights and follies of being a small business, uh, that second year is always crucial because it's the make-or-break year. And uh, unfortunately, we didn't really get to experience the make part. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, we went right into lockdown in March, and my February was was pretty pretty well booked with bridal consultations and I thought well this is it you know we're finally we finally made a presence in Toronto we're starting to get the word out of the business and then everything collapsed because obviously the bridal industry also was in shambles and events industry everything that would require you know special events clothing um, but I did notice I was getting an uptick in clients because I think a lot of people were working from home 
And in mm-hmm. working from home, I don't think a lot of people thought about having proper office setups because they wouldn't, you know, they're not, they weren't supposed to be working from home. You know, they have an office that has an office set up. And so we were getting uh, quite a number of clients who were ordering very basic product to just give them back support while they were, you know, working eight hours a day in their home. And I think that helped us a lot. Um, I did pivot a little bit to uh, be online a little bit more. I started working with the, uh, a, a manufacturer in Montreal that does beautiful sublimation prints and uh, spent a lot of the lockdown where I couldn't actually come into the store uh, designing scarves. And we, we were always kind of we, we, doing the one-of-a-kind shows. You know, people loved our scarves because we would mm-hmm. source these amazing fabrics that had skulls on them. But I always wanted to design my own fabrics. And being able to work with a manufacturer that can produce my vision was pretty awesome. And my customers were very supportive of that. You know, everybody loves a good scarf, you know, especially something that's like, you know, hand designed by the designer themselves. But um, in, in otherwise, you know, we were very lucky that the federal government provided rent abatement assistance. Uh, I think it came a little too late, but we mm-hmm. managed to survive. Um, you know, I think the government really, really failed small business. And uh, we just did our best to cut as many costs as we could. You know, I had to, I had to lay off staff, which really mm-hmm. sucks. Because, you know, we're a small business and all my staff have been with me since the beginning, since I started doing, you know, small trade shows and to, you know, build it to this place where we all have, you know, at least part time work together. You know, it was it was very sad, but it, it, it allowed me to keep the shop, which was the primary concern. I've been working out of studios for years. I, I worked out of a studio for years. And it got to the point where I really needed to have a showroom so I could entertain my clients in a quiet environment. And, you know, having that under threat has just been the, uh, I guess, the kick I needed <laughs> to, to do whatever I can to, to keep the business functioning. Kate, I was looking over your website. I actually encountered the store and I thought, oh, that's really cool. And then um, when I dug a little bit, I realized, wait a minute, I know her. I've seen her at the corner of Young and Dundas, and and I hadn't made the connection before then. But tell me a little bit about how you got into uh, into being into you know busking and how you got your start as a, a living statue. You've had some really interesting characters that you've done over the years. So how did it all get started? Yeah, it's a, it's, it's it's really interesting actually, kind of going from talking about Bon and Busk to <laughs> my my street world because I've always. <laughs> always strove to keep the two separate uh, because there is a stigma to being a street performer by the general public. And I didn't want to be reduced to the sum of that. And my, my history with street performing is not really a glamorous start. Uh, You know, it really, it it came from needing to get out of a terrible home life and trying to, you know, juggle moving out, attending university and, you know, keeping a roof over my head and, and, and separating myself from, you know, a bad, a bad spot. And uh, so it really, it wasn't something I expected to turn into a career, that's for sure. <laughs> um, I started doing Living Statue because it was probably the most accessible way uh, to, to do street theater. Uh, I was always kind of known for somebody who had flamboyant clothing. So I did a little bit of research on what the history of Living Statue was. I'm very fortunate that you know my uh, my grandmother was a clown in Italy so you know we have a, a history and tradition of 
understanding Commedia dell'arte and characters and a living statue is is one of those kind of the, theatrical tropes in Italian theater. So mm-hmm. I kind of knew what that was, but I you know did some more research and started doing that. And then I just started training uh, in mime. I got picked up by a circus and started working with them and started training on other skills uh, in variety, like juggling, balancing things on my face, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> and, uh, but I always loved uh, physical theater and that was kind of what I always wanted to make a, a you know, when I decided, when I, when, I, when I got to the point where I was like in my mid twenties and I had rejected effectively uh, an interview for a job in my field uh, from, that I studied in university because I was already touring full-time like I was trying full time in my third year of university. Realistically, I probably should have dropped out and had a you know a, a healthier career at that point because I was kind of still straddling. Um, but yeah, when I kind of realized it was going to be my career, I, I settled on physical theater and I built my show Madame Guillotine that I traveled all over the world with um, about seven or eight years ago. So I worked mm-hmm. as a statue and site animation artist for quite a long time, doing a lot of corporate, doing a lot of international corporate. Um, doing obviously a lot of street, a lot of street theater festivals. Uh, but then I, I really wanted to expand my horizons. So I built my show. I hired a director. Uh, I, I had some talented people working behind me, helping me build, you know, my magic guillotine. I built all my costumes, obviously, and all of the soft props. And uh, yeah, just, just worked with the director, built the show, and then took it to the street, worked it very hard, and started touring. And that's kind of what happened. <laughs> In, in in one respect, uh, street theater is so accessible. I mean, you're walking down the street and here's someone who's putting on this amazing performance and maybe you drop a fiver in or something. But I know one of the uh, the characters that you, work, you worked on quite extensively, for example, was Marie Antoinette, who as a character setting aside the theater of the thing is someone who really makes me think about the social issues. And so did did your work ever also intend to be social commentary? Were you hoping to uh, get people to think a little bit deeper as they rush past you at the corner of Young and, and Dundas in Toronto? Oh, 100%. Uh, I mean, the all of my characters, my very first character going, I mean, what I love about street theater is that it, again, it is accessible. Uh, I always say at the end of my full-length show to my audience in the hat line, you know, those that can pay will pay for those who can't because I believe everybody should have the experience of theater in their life. And, you know, my first character, I did an angel that, you know, handed out nihilist fortunes, uh, getting people to kind of think about, think critically about, you know, faith, think critically about, you know, just, just believing something because they've been told to believe it. Uh, So I've always, I've always maintained a political and social commentary in all of my work. My wind up doll character Coppelia, for example, is, uh, you know, uh, really takes the concept of femininity and spins it on the, on its head. You know, this, this, this doll that's female presenting who acts in servitude, but just completely destroys everything in their path. Mm-hmm. Um, and with Madame Guillotine, the full length show, it was 100% designed to be a social commentary on capitalism and, um, there's a lot that go into that that goes into that particular show. Uh, when I perform it in Europe, for example, uh, I'm performing in places where public executions were actually the first form of street theater, which I don't think a lot of people realize. So uh, my thesis for that show is that street performers transform spaces. We take spaces where 
terrible things used to happen and we turn them into places of joy and laughter where people can all come together of all different races, ethnicities, social backgrounds, economic backgrounds, educational backgrounds, and we can all laugh together. And it, we also, I also talk about thinking critically about, you know, consumption and capitalism and the effects of capitalism. My character, you know, Marie Antoinette is not a good character. That character is not a good person. That character mm-hmm. gets their comeuppance at the end of the show because I want everybody to feel empowered you know, as a, as a community, they can take down the wealthy, they can take down the rich, they can take down the Bezos, you know. <laughs> um, you know, one of the things that I, I think a lot of women with disabilities struggle with is a sense of safety in public spaces. And I know for myself, when I'm walking down the street, I'm always worried about being accosted by strangers, well-meaning strangers, but strangers nonetheless encroaching on, say, my personal space. Uh, there's a, a fear almost of, of, strangers and interactions with strangers and how they might perceive you as a person with a disability. So I wanted to ask based on sort of your experience as a a female presenting performing artist, how you handle those ideas or those perceptions of safety and how maybe you hold a public space and, and maybe, you know, take ownership of that space. So what are your, what are your strategies or your thoughts about that? Mm, Well, I was very fortunate that I grew up, you know, with a lot of confidence. Uh, I studied martial arts for years. I even taught, you know, uh, the, 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 the children's class when I was, you know, at a stage in my development and uh, education level. So I, I've always, my, my, my parents, for all of their faults, always taught me to take up as much space as possible because I, I'm worth taking up space. You know, I'm, I'm valid. I'm allowed to take up space. I'm allowed to take up as much space as I want. And I can be 100% my authentically myself. You know, uh, I've always struggled with gender identity. They were always supportive of that. Um, I was always very, you know, assertive and they were very supportive of that. And so I guess my experience is probably going to be a lot more unique than most female presenting people um, because I wasn't raised with that social code of minimize for the sake of the male gaze. Um, I was always kind of like, you know, who cares about that? Go off and do your thing and be the best thing you can be at what you do. Um, so I know it's, it's, it's a privileged position to take. Um, so I don't really know how to answer that other than authentically as myself. (laughs) (laughs) Um, one of the things I like about street theater is just I'm so captivated by the things that I don't get to see or experience. And so I often have like conversations with whomever I'm with. I'll say, can you describe the costumes? Can you tell me what they're doing? How do you approach um, interactions with people with disabilities? I'm, you know, people, someone who's visually impaired. Uh, How would you sort of evolve or have you tried to evolve your your performance to reflect the fact that not everybody experiences uh street theater or performance in the same way well i i because i'm a mime artist and i am a silent act uh i noticed a lot of people who were uh hearing impaired or hearing disabled uh would gravitate towards me because i can Mm -hmm. tell a story that they can understand without requiring um, you know, special, you know, verbal skills and learning a different language. Uh, I did teach myself a little bit of ASL 
uh, just so that I can, you know, say thank you, for example, to uh, a mm-hmm. hearing impaired individual who gives me a tip. Uh, we lobbied uh, at Edinburgh Fringe in 2019. Uh, the street events team lobbied to have uh, a stage that had uh, British sign language interpreters on site because we wanted to ensure that our shows were more accessible, obviously due to the funding for street events. We couldn't get every single stage with the interpreter, but we made sure we always had one stage that always had um, a sign language interpreter on on site, which was really, really awesome. And the the Edinburgh Fringe Street Theatre community is just incredible because they take that into consideration. I remember one time doing a show at the Feeney, uh, it was a couple years ago, and there was a developmentally disabled individual who uh, really, really wanted to be one of my volunteer participants in the show mm-hmm. because he was showing videos to a friend of his uh, who wasn't in Toronto and couldn't come to the event. And he wanted to like show a video of him being in the show. So he got a friend to bring a camera one day and asked if he could be the volunteer. And at first I was a little reticent because I was very concerned that I didn't have the skills to ensure the audience wouldn't think I was making fun of him, specifically mm-hmm. because my character is a jerk. But I thought about it. it thank, thankfully, he spoke to me like a couple of days before, you know, was kind of like, hey, do you mind if I be a part of your show? So I thought about it. You know, I talked about it with my partner, who's a fantastic director. And we talked about ways we can help, you know, realize this individual's dream without you know, compromising how the audience would view both them and myself. You know, I don't want to put somebody in a position where they feel vulnerable and they feel like they're being made fun of. Um, mm-hmm. And it ended up working out. It ended up really working out. He had a really great time. We hugged at the end of the show when hugging was still a thing. <laughs> <laughs> and we got a video. And and that one, was, that one was one of probably the most memorable experiences I've had working with somebody who uh, faces disabilities because it was, not just about our interaction, but it was about how the audience would perceive that individual. And I just really wanted to protect, you know, his dignity. Um, and hopefully mm-hmm. I accomplished that, but he seemed to have fun. So that was, uh, <laughs> that was an experience. And, and, and it's such an evolving form that I think there's a lot of spontaneity to change things up and sort of change the way you do things. We're almost out of time. So I think just in the, in the minute or so we've got left, how can we catch some of your work? And um, are you doing things online now because of the pandemic? So if you have a virtual space where we can come meet you, please let us know where that is. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I DJ on Tuesdays and Thursdays on Twitch. Uh, my channel is uh, www.twitch.tv slash hate me or so it's h-a-t-e-m-i-o-r and you can visit bone and busk because we are now open to the public again yay well we're located <laughs> at 1616 queen street west uh that's queen and sororin and our website is boneandbusk.com and you said you had someone from montreal who came down for a fitting uh so you would you be willing to work with somebody from a different part of the country if they had an order and oh. they wanted you to you know custom make something for them Oh, we do, we do global work. I've had people fly from France to come and be fit by me. I've also, I have a, I have a mock-up right now that's in uh, Sydney, Australia. <laughs> Poor client is in lockdown right now. Uh, we do remote fittings all over the world. So uh, we have no barriers. See, now that's a really high note to leave it on. Kate, thank you so much for being on the program. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. That was Kate Muir, who is a performer, a DJ, as you heard, and the owner of Bones and Busk Bespoke 
Corsetry in Toronto. Uh, if you missed any of my conversation, you can always find the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. You can also head on over to ami.ca forward slash on the pulse. I'd like to thank Kate Muir for being my guest on the program. Sam Robinson is our technical producer in Finistrine Abdul Majid. Andy Frank is the manager for AMI Audio, and Paula Janine is our technical supervisor. Thanks a lot for listening. Stay safe and have a wonderful rest of your day. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.